welcome to all we podcast at episode number 2 finally we got uh, we uh, recovered from uh, christmas holidays and we took i think a long hard look at our first episode <laughs> then we decided to have episode number 2 so new year new episode and we have um, this is vijay from uh, from holland so walter from belgium and we have a special guest today andy welcome to the welcome to the show andy yeah thank you thanks for having me So let's uh, get started with the quick uh, introductions. I think um, long-time listeners of our short-time podcast already know about us, so we, we don't need introductions for ourselves. Uh, so Andy, can you tell us, you know, um, uh, about yourself and um, programming career and um, your association with Rust? Absolutely, and I try and keep this fairly condensed. So um, yes, Andy Grove. So I'm from England originally. Um, I've been working full time for around 30 years now. Uh so kind of a long career but um obviously started out in England working for kind of banks in London. Um I moved to the US about 11 years ago to join a startup and I think that's really where a lot of this my journey became a little bit more interesting. Um my background at that time was pretty heavy in Java um related technologies and I became involved in building systems to process data. and to execute sql queries and things like that and it's been um it's been like a fascinating journey for me it's an area that i'm really always wanting to learn more about and through a while i was building distributed systems in java um with you know pretty high transaction volumes lots of concurrent users it was a quite a learning curve at the time and that job kind of came to an end and as well as kind of uh, updating my resume i realized i've been using java for more than 20 years and it kind of made me feel like a cobol programmer a bit <laughs> and i thought you know <laughs> it's time i start learning some new things and before i kind of jumped on the java bandwagon i was a c++ developer um and you know see with rust coming out to me it seems like the best of both worlds um it's a like you know a higher level language and gives you the safety of java but you get the performance of c++ So it's really wanting to learn Rust. Um but it was definitely a very difficult learning curve especially this is before Rust 1.0. Um but I figured the best way for me to learn the language was to try and build something. Um because my job had changed and I was no longer working on this kind of SQL stuff that was interesting to me. I thought well why not try and build something like that again but in Rust. Um Rust just seems like an ideal choice for building that type of system. So mm. that that's kind of the short version that's kind of how I got started on this journey that led to things like our own data fusion. Coming from the GC language like like Java and and obviously you know for 20 years of uh, getting used to GC stuff um how 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 was it to switch to uh, not switch to but you know uh, getting into Rust? So honestly the GC part wasn't so bad. Um so in Rust as you know you can write extremely efficient code and due to the the rules around ownership it can be quite tricky to get used to the that you know the compiler often won't compile your code. Uh one thing I learned fairly early on is that you can use Rust in a different way. You can use it more like a GC language by using the reference counted pointers mm-hmm. and putting things onto the heap. Mm-hmm. And it may not be the the most optimal thing for some use cases, but you know I mean compared to building a system in java that still you know is a step in the right direction so i kind of used that as a bit of a crutch to help me get you know get things working early on mm-hmm. um and really now after a, a few years working with rust i'm now trying to get better at using rust in a like a more efficient way and you know using the stack instead of the heap more often and using you know using lifetimes but yeah so so i'd say the gc part wasn't so bad but the the thing that caused me more difficulty was the fact that java is so object oriented and mm-hmm. after 20 years of object orientation go they trying to design things in rust where there is no object orientation that that was something that i found very challenging yeah right so when when doing these uh you know massively concurrent systems in java what were some of the of the pain point points that that, that you felt or at least like the ones that were you know alleviated by moving to rust if you can make that comparison by now yeah absolutely i mean thread safety is um always challenging in i mean in most languages um so specifically data races and as we all know rust um has some guarantees around data races so that's that's very useful um 
So one of the systems I worked on in Java, just to like have something concrete to talk about, um, I, I was lead developer on a platform called DB Shards. Um, basically, it was a database sharding solution. And this was at a time where people were starting to build Facebook games and they were hosting them in Amazon. Mm. And at that time, you couldn't get very large instance sizes. So people were hosting their own MySQL databases, but they could only scale so far. Uh, so we had a solution that would allow users to basically partition their database, have multiple instances of MySQL running, mm-hmm. and then we had some middleware that made it look like a single database. Mm-hmm. Um, and as part of that, we had our own replication solution. So we're, we have all these concurrent users, these concurrent transactions, and we're replicating data. And so we were doing this in Java and doing a lot of like threading. Uh, we weren't really using any frameworks to help with concurrency. It was just raw threading. And... You know, it's one thing I found it's very difficult to guarantee that the code was safe. Um, hmm. You know, you can you can look at the code and make some kind of mental assessment as whether it looks good or not. You can write some, you can run some stress tests and do some validation that they did what you expect. Uh, but then you find when you go into production and you have like an order of magnitude more traffic going through, you suddenly find these kind of edge cases. Um, and even after many years working on this project, I'm, I'm sure there was one risk condition left that I could never track down. Uh, but out of like one billion transactions, like one row would get corrupted. Yeah. And I saw this happen like three times over the span of like maybe a year. And I, I spent, you know, many hours trying to get to the bottom of that one. I could never really figure out what was going on. So, so I feel like with Rust and the safety guarantees, um, the, you know, it would have been a far better choice had it been around at the time or had I, been proficient in it at the time. Uh, and I feel like Rust would make it much um, safer to build these kind of systems. Yeah. And in ten, you, you were saying about the um, object-orientedness of Java and then switching to Rust has been a bit of a, uh, a different paradigm or something. So how Yeah, absolutely. It? And, and, and it, sure, and it's, again, it kind of depends on the use case. For you know certain code, it's really not an issue. But one thing, one project I worked on in Rust, um, so I built a SQL parser. Yeah. There's a create SQL parser-rs, a few people mm-hmm. using it. And um, yeah, I, I kind of feel I was, I was never quite happy with how the design came out there. But my objective was to build a SQL parser that could handle multiple dialects. Mm-hmm. So you could use it to pass you know, Postgres SQL or MySQL SQL. And if I were doing this in Java, um, so let me just take a step back. So just some terminology around parsing. So typically um, in a parser, you you first translate. So you have a SQL string, yeah. just pure text. You kind of tokenize it. You split it up into tokens where you have tokens for keywords and literals and things like that. Yeah. And then you build uh, like an abstract syntax tree from that. So you have a, a tree that's really defining the structure of a query. And in Java, I would have a class probably called like SQL node. Yeah. And then I maybe would extend that with a, like an ANSI SQL node. Then maybe I would extend that with a MySQL node and a Postgres node. Mm-hmm. And then I could build in some different behavior. Um, and But that approach in Rust doesn't really work. So uh, we have this more kind of trait-based system. And it's just mm-hmm. a different way of thinking about the problem. And one way of going about this, you could just end up with completely different implementations for Postgres and MySQL that happen to share a lot of common code. Uh, would be kind of a naive way of doing it. But then hopefully you can abstract some of that out and delegate to some common libraries. Uh, so it's definitely possible, but it's just a very different way of thinking about the problem. Yeah. And the, I think the for, for me, as you said, I think uh, one of the difficulties is to understand how to design a system, especially when you switch from one type of language to the other. Um, because you know, if you're used to Java, then uh, things like Clojure, for example, it's Lisp and then it's dynamic and we don't have any class system or anything there. Then everything is just functions talking to data. That's pretty much it. And then with the thrust, um, I'm still a beginner, obviously. <laughs> uh, I'm still trying to understand how how to think in Rust. You know, that, that has been a bigger, bigger challenge. So how, how did you... Um, start with Rust. So, how did you learn Rust? <laughs> Painfully. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's definitely. I mean, it's definitely one of the. Yeah, it's probably the most. I don't know. C plus plus and Rust are the two most difficult languages that I've had to learn. Uh, C plus plus was a little bit harder at the time because 
I'm incredibly old and there wasn't really much on the internet back then. Yeah. Was, you know, reading books on the train. <laughs> um, so Rust, we have the benefit of this like amazing community and that, that, you know, that, that really helps. I could go and ask people questions every time I got stuck. Um, and it def- things definitely got a lot easier once the O'Reilly book was out. Mm. Um, and there's also the, the um, so I forget the name, but the main kind of Rust book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think so it's just called the Rust, book. the Rust book. It is just the Rust book. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so you know, things definitely got a lot easier once there were some books there that would walk you through all of the features. Yeah. Um, because yeah, before then, I felt I was really kind of stumbling around a bit, um, just learning from people's blog posts and asking for help online. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I think I made the mistake probably of trying to build something quite complex in Rust uh, right off instead of starting with maybe. You know, with hindsight, I probably should have tried building some very simple utilities in Rust first, just to get more experience with the language, yeah. uh, rather than diving straight in and trying to build kind of database technology. Yeah, I think we, we last, I think in the last episode, we were talking about what is your first Rust project. And then uh, mine was like a small Git status show or whatever. And then Walter is busy building. Uh, tell us about it, Walter. The, Oh, yeah, yeah. Started doing a new thing. So I, I made a oh yeah, you already made one. A full text search CLI um, application. So basically, um, I'm not sure if you ever used Auto Jump. Uh, so not. Uh, the idea is that if it, it keeps a small database of paths you've been to in your shell, and then you can just jump to them just with fuzzy fuzzy matching effectively. So if you have a, a I don't know, I've got a small project called DDDNS, so I can just type S and then DDD, and it will go to that folder using fuzzy matching. So I've... Uh, okay, yeah. cool. That, it, it was sufficiently challenging to do this one because I, I specifically... Yeah, my wish list of features that I wanted was low. <laughs> so, yeah. that, that's yeah. how it starts. And that's what we were wondering, because you know, our projects were like really tiny things. And then the project that you started with, was Data Fusion was your first big project? <clears throat> so it was Data Fusion. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. And it, it gets a little bit confusing between Data, F- uh, sorry, Data Fusion, Arrow, and Ballista is another project. Yeah. And I've definitely been kind of jumping around and pivoting a bit and changing direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I first started Data Fusion, my goal, very unrealistically, was to build a replacement for Apache Spark yeah. in Rust, so a full distributed compute platform. Um, so I had some pieces that I knew how to do, uh, like writing a SQL parser, something I've done many times in different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I, I kind of knew, I, I knew a little bit about all the different areas, and I had the big picture of how this should ideally be. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, I got to a point fairly quickly where, where I realized I'd bitten off like way too much. I was overly ambitious with the, the scope of the project. Um, so then I kind of scaled back to just doing, uh, like passing some SQL and then executing a query against some data. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was very interested in Parquet and CSV as the two main sources, just because uh, you know I happened to be using Parquet in my day job. And I was very curious to see the performance of Rust querying Parquet compared to something like Apache Spark. Hmm. Um, and the, and at this point in time, I, I knew about Apache Arrow, but I wasn't intending to use it at the time. I didn't really know that much about the project. And and I had this kind of hypothesis when I started Data Fusion that, um, I mean, Apache Spark is a fantastic project. I have a huge amount of respect for it. But it's just very incredible how um, there's a Java project that's worked really hard to not really use Java that yeah. much. So it's using some really advanced concepts like dynamic code generation mm-hmm. uh, instead of interpreting code, and it's using you know off heap yeah. memory in a kind of binary format. They also have their own so serialization my, my, format as well, right? I mean, they they customize the serialization, right? right? Yeah, yeah. They've, I mean, they've customized so much, and it's a very complex project. Yeah. Uh, my hypothesis was that if I wrote something fairly naive in Rust, mm-hmm. the performance would be quite good, mm-hmm. just naturally, without having to really do this advanced engineering. Hmm. And my the first version of Data Fusion that I kind of announced on Reddit uh, was actually row-based instead of columnar. Um, and row-based is a pretty naive way of doing these things, and it was something that I was comfortable with at the time. But it's through posting this on Reddit. Um, quite a few people told me that it just doesn't make sense to do row-based these yeah. days, that columnar is so much better. And 
it's, it's through that interaction on Reddit that really led me to look at um, Apache Arrow and how they were doing things with columnar memory. And, you know, with columnar, you can take advantage of hardware features like SIMD on the CPU, SIMD, yeah. um, um, same instruction, multiple data. So yeah. basically you can, uh, just more efficient computation and also uh, GPU as well. You can take better advantage of with columnar data. So that was, that was a, great, um, a great thing to learn. And that's one of the great things about being involved in the open source community with Rust. Uh, it's not just me on my own trying to build something. I get all these people helping me, whether it's just through like just some suggestions like that or by actually contributing code to the project. So that's been, yeah. that's been really cool. But if you, if you I mean, obviously, I mean, data fusion with, with its original goal of, you know, spark in rust or something is is, uh, is a monumental project i think um, because yeah. <laughs> uh, also spark had like a lot of head start right because all these java libraries are available for every possible thing that you can think of so um so for parquet and everything there were libraries available already for you when you started so yes there were so once i found so um just going through that journey it's a little more so in data fusion i started using this column the memory format mm. Um, there wasn't a Rust implementation of Apache Arrow at the time. Uh, but I, I, so what, at that point, I kind of turned my data fusion memory model into something more like Arrow, and then I was able to donate that to the project. So now we had a Rust implementation yeah. of Arrow. Um, and then I, it was through that work that I got in touch with some other people who had built a Parquet implementation in Rust, mm. and they donated that to the Apache Arrow project. So in the Arrow repo, there is a Parquet library in there, okay. as well as the Arrow memory model. Mm. And there's ongoing work now to kind of integrate those more tightly. Uh, but in Data Fusion, I was using those two crates, Arrow and Parquet. So I was reading from Parquet and then converting to Arrow format. And then my Data Fusion query engine was querying the Arrow memory format, basically. Okay. So could you maybe give a bit more explanation around Arrow and, and what it does? Because... I don't find the website very enlightening, or at least it had left me a bit confused. Okay, sure, I can I can understand that. I mean, so Arrow, um, yeah. So Apache projects are really interesting. They're they're very. Um, I'm trying to think of the term they use. I think they they call it a duocracy. You know, if people show up and are contributing, they're quite likely to be able to you know have their contributions accepted into the project, and different people come and go and. So the direction can kind of change a little bit over time. And also there are multiple language implementations as well, which is uh, another kind of dimension to that. But yeah, Arrow started out as basically a specification for a memory format. So literally just defining how to store data in memory in this columnar format that would make it possible to process efficiently on modern hardware. And earlier on, there were really just two implementations. There was a C++ and a Java implementation. And one of the benefits, of course, of having a common memory model is that you can um, use multiple languages against the same data. So rather than serializing data and sending it to another mm -hmm. process on the same host, you can just kind of pass a pointer to the memory and access the data without that kind of survey cost. Um, yeah. And over time, you know, other, other people got involved. And I think there are now something like 11 different language mm -hmm. implementations of Arrow of that memory model. Um, so that's where Arrow kind of started. But then, you know, people started writing code to do things with that memory, like, um, you know, evaluating expressions against it or executing queries. So all these different sub-projects in Arrow, they've all kind of grown um, with slightly different feature sets. Uh, some are more mature than others. You know, the Rust one is still fairly early on. Um, and yeah, so there's a move now in Arrow to actually build these kind of compute kernels where you can perform computations against that Arrow memory model. Uh, so there's one project that was donated by Dremio. Uh, there's a project called Gandiva, mm. which is based in C++. And it, it isn't a query engine, um, but it allows you to evaluate expressions against Arrow memory. So let's see, let's take a simple expression A plus B, but A plus B are two columns of numeric values. Yeah. Using the Scandiva library, you can uh, evaluate that expression, and it actually generates LLVM code and can take advantage of things like GPU and some of these. So it's very efficient. And there is a, a project underway to build a query engine in C++ um, that 
that leverages that kind of capability. And data fusion, in a way, is kind of um, it's a parallel. I wouldn't say it's competitive, but it's like a separate query engine. Mm-hmm. So really, we've got two query engines being built there in the Arrow project, C++ and Rust. Um, hmm. And I think there's some interesting opportunities for some convergence there at some point, because uh, obviously Rust is, you know, can be very compatible. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting for me, especially, I mean, I, I'm, I'm from India originally, uh, and then all these names are like Indian names showing up, and then, then they suddenly make more sense to me now, because <laughs> Gandiva is the bow uh, of a of a semi-god called Arjuna. And then he has this, so he's using Arrow and Gandhiva and that, thing, that kind of stuff. I think in, in big data stuff, I think there are plenty of Indian people now. And then the execution engine Tez means fast, literally in Hindi. Uh, so I think there is. Oh, really? Yeah. So <laughs> we, we are taking over. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cultural overtaking, like imperialism <laughs> from India. <laughs> Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. But it's really funny to see because when I started learning computing, everything is in English and then, you know, nothing is in my language. And then now I see these project mm-hmm. names and stuff in, 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 the, in the words that I can understand. I mean, understand as in my own tongue a bit, my own uh, language. It's really funny to hear, like, especially foreigners saying these sure, words. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. That's really cool. Like uh, Ambari, for example. Ambari, the, to manage the Hadoop clusters. Um, Ambari literally oh. means um, like a um, uh, on a, the the thing that rides an elephant, like on an elephant. So oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a procession of elephants. It's called Ambari, and then the guy who manages <laughs> an elephant. So every time I see these words, I'm like, finally, <laughs> <laughs> representation <laughs> of, of our languages. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, sorry for the digression. <laughs> I kind of like the nerd references in, in processes yeah. when you see like a big manager in suit, yeah. you know, proudly proclaiming we're going to use Vegeta to uh, stress test our <laughs> services. So it's just like you know, Dragon Ball Z reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, they have no clue, but it's kind of it's kind of exactly. I think that those are the ones that make our uh, Life better every time uh, we see Stack or you know the 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 whole stack traces in 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 Java. So we, we go through that pain <laughs> yeah. a lot. So we need some entertainment every now and then. <laughs> yeah, so um, coming back to some more uh, serious issues. So um, so what is the uh, first of all before before you know talking more about data fusion, I was really curious about your your blog post. Like why Rust is like better for distributed. Uh, uh, programming so sure so okay, thought and, a bit yeah and, and really this comes back to uh my experiences with apache spark again so with apache spark uh one of the big issues even though they've tried to not use the jvm too much there, there are still java objects being created and destroyed and uh that tends to lead to issues over time where the garbage collector suddenly has a lot of work to do and you have these things called gc pauses where your whole execution just stops for like many seconds yeah. while it kind of cleans things up. And you can also run out of memory very easily. So one thing I've seen is that Spark workloads are working fine for some period of time. Then something changes and now they're crashing with memory errors and developers have to go and tweak some settings yeah. and then try again. And really, if you're going to execute a query on some data, it should be very deterministic in terms of how much memory is used. And you should be able to calculate that up front. Mm-hmm. Like, you know how much data you have, you know the operations you're going to perform, you should be able to calculate how much memory that needs. And in a language like Rust, where you have that, you know, because it isn't GC, you have much more control over how that memory is being created and destroyed. It just seems like it should be possible to write something very, uh, very efficient, but more importantly, I think more predictable. So that you know that each time you run this, it's going to take you know a certain amount of time, and you, and you have confidence that it will be reliable and actually run to completion. Mm. And, and um, so, uh, thinking about the data fusion direction, so uh, I think you you started experimenting with um, a kind of a, a, a processing system as well, right? With Kubernetes, and right. Yeah, so so this is the great thing. So like I had my original overly ambitious goal and then kind of came back, but but through that we've ended up some building blocks that can now help me try again to get to the the thing that I originally wanted. So now that we have so we have the array memory formats, we have some in-memory query execution. Mm-hmm. 
So the next piece is like, how do we make that distributed? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things we need is like a protocol to be able to send this data efficiently between processes. And luckily, uh, there's been a development in Arrow over the last kind of 18 months, I think. Yeah. Um, there's a, a protocol called Flight. Yeah, yeah. Arrow Flight. So this is, yeah, so this is like a gRPC-based protocol specifically for exchanging streams of Arrow data between processes. Um, mm. And again, obviously, it doesn't matter what language all these things are implemented in because it's a common protocol based on the memory standard. Okay. Um, so that's great. So that's another kind of piece that I needed for the, the eventual goal. Um, and I did start a, a project called Ballista, mm. uh, which is very, very much a POC smoke and mirrors for sure. This isn't something that people can really use, but I just wanted to show, uh, kind of show what's possible and hopefully inspire people to kind of get involved in this project. And it just happened that I've been over the last year or so in my day job, I've been learning Kubernetes and Kubernetes is a, a way of basically distributing Docker containers on a cluster. Uh, kind of orchestrating them. So all these pieces I saw coming together. So I, I worked on this POC where I could run um, some nodes in Rust that had a gRPC server, mm -hmm. and I was able to send a query, just a SQL stream, to these processes, have them use data fusion to run a query against some Parquet file, and then return the results just as a string again, just comma-separated values. Yeah. Um, Obviously, ultimately, flight would be much better. But this was enough that I could then demonstrate taking one query and running it against a cluster. Uh, so running it like an aggregate query. So effectively, running the same query against each node on a subset of the data, those results get streamed back to one node where the results get combined and then returned to the user. Yeah. And uh, so I recorded, I did like a, a text, like an ASCII cinema screen capture of that and posted it to uh, Hacker News one day. And um, the, the response was really incredible. It was on the front page for 24 hours or so, uh, a ton of feedback, so, yeah, the usual kind of Hacker News experience, <laughs> um, some, some really good feedback and some very abusive feedback. <laughs> for, you know, it's just kind of interesting. Yeah. And, um, but there, there's definitely a lot of interest in the area. Um, and I think I'd, I still want to pursue this project over time. Uh, but yeah, I'm still waiting for a few of the pieces to be in place before I can really make the kind of progress that I want to on that project. Yeah. Oh. And and what what about the RDBC? Are you trying to bring Java to uh, <laughs> to Rust? <laughs> Sadly, yes. And a lot of people will hate me for doing that. Um, so JDBC and ODBC, um, for people that don't know, I mean, so, so Microsoft invented ODBC, the Open Database Connectivity Standard. And mm -hmm. it's just a way, I mean, you imagine you've got different vendors producing database products you have different vendors with desktop products that can work with databases obviously it doesn't make sense for each desktop vendor to write an integration for every single database if you have one standard it makes that job easier so we ended up with these things called odbc drivers mm -hmm. so i could use a tool like tableau or power bi or you know those kind of tools and then i can just get an odbc or jwc driver for the database I want to use, and I'm all good. And Rust has really been missing that concept. Mm. Um, so I saw this kind of gap there. So yeah, it, it, it seems to be quite, quite a polarizing project because um, <laughs> we have some really, really nice things out there for Rust like Diesel, where you can write uh, really kind of idiomatic Rust code for working with your database. You don't even have to mess with SQL. Mm. And I think if you're building an application from scratch and you get to choose what database you want to use. I think Diesel could be a really great choice. But if you're in the, if you need to do integrations between systems, um, or you're writing a generic SQL tool, or, or you're writing a Rust version of something like Power BI, then you want to, you want your product to work with as many databases as possible. So I think there really is a need for a common API for accessing databases. So uh, yeah, so basically I ripped off JDBC and created some traits and put together a POC. Um, this seems to be something I kind of tend to do a lot, just start something, I have this idea, I try and show it to people and judge, you know, if, is, do, are people really interested in this yeah. or not? And then hopefully, if, if it's a good idea, hopefully people will help me, you know, turn it into something useful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at with RDBC. And I think there's been a few, there's been a few contributors so far and there are some design flaws already that I'm really well aware of and I'm hoping to go back and do some more work on this soon. Um, but I think I think it is something that will. Um, I think there's enough interest that it will 
kind of become a thing over time. Yeah. But this is um, because I see like different, um, obviously most of the people, as far as I understood so far, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, because we are not in the community for long or we're not using Rust for that long. Sure. Um, so most of the people are coming from C++ direction. But I also see mm. people who are using Haskell. Um, they are now attracted to Rust as well. And they're, they're trying, uh, I think, uh, FP Complete or something. One of the blogs that I follow, um, Haskell programmers like Michael Snowman and those people, they started writing Rust blog posts. And because if you see the the API design between these two worlds are fairly different because one being purely functional uh, driven stuff. Right. Uh, so how, how do you how do you see Rust in terms of those uh, that, that that I don't know I don't want to call it a dichotomy but kind of a false dichotomy. That's interesting, and I really don't know too much about Haskell, um, but I know for sure there are people using C and C plus plus that see Rust as a kind of a more modern. Uh, safer version with better tooling and just kind of it's a, definitely a nicer experience. Mm -hmm. And then you do have people coming from Java yeah. who perhaps, you know, perhaps they were a little bit intimidated by C++ with all the manual memory management um, and the difficulty building on different platforms. And I think uh, Rust makes system level programming much more accessible to people that come from more of a kind of JVM background. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, I talked about, talked earlier about the fact that Java is very object oriented and that was a struggle for me coming to Rust. I, I can just imagine that's the same for Haskell developers used to pure functional coming to more of an idiomatic language with some functional programming. Yeah. yeah I mean, this is, this has been a, I mean, like what would be the idiomatic way of writing Rust? You know, that, that is the. I think one of the, that's what I was, I was saying, like, you know, for, for me as a beginner, um, thinking in Rust takes, takes a bit of a time mm -hmm. to, to figure out what is the way, because um, other languages, usually there is some sort of a precedent, some, some sort of a model that I have in my mind. If I, coming from, if I come from Java, if I write C Sharp, then there is kind of one-to-one -one match, pretty much, how I design systems or uh, how I think. Um, but with mm -hmm. Rust, it's been a bit of a, you know, challenging situation for me <laughs> so sure sure and, and honestly it still is for me i mean even though i've been working with rust um for some time now i'm really just doing this in my you know spare time mm -hmm. evenings and weekends so i'm really not um you know if, if i were using rust as in my day job and spending 40 hours a week or more with it i'm sure i'd be you know much more proficient right. by now but i'm just kind of tinkering my spare time and um i'm not being able to build useful things in Rust without without becoming an expert in the language. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, kind of an important point. I think one of the things that made, and I, I know it's a mistake I made early on trying to learn Rust, I was trying to do everything the right way, you know, with lifetimes and super efficient code. Yeah. But I don't think that's always necessary. I think it's okay sometimes to put, you know, put some data in the heap, you know, depending on the use case, that really might not be the worst thing in the world. And if that helps you, um, get through your journey of learning Rust, and you're, you're able to build things. Um, you know, I, th I, th I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, I've kind of lost track. No, of that's the okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't have any problems with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the whole point um, of podcast is to go every possible tangent. I mean, we, we talked about I'm Indian sorry, languages. Sorry, <laughs> You're asking about like what does idiomatic cluster yeah, look yeah. like, and I think um, I, I think my gut feel now is that you know it's very kind of uh, the traits are really important. If you're just dealing with the traits and um, rather than specific types, um, I think that seems that's the direction I'm kind of heading in. One, I should write a blog post on this. So in, in Rust, we have these really cool enumerations, which are algebraic data types. Mm -hmm. And they're different to an enumeration in a language like Java. In Java, you can have an enumeration, but it just has uh, like simple values. So if you have an, you could have an enumeration called week, and you could have values Monday, Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday. Uh, in Rust, in an in each arm in the enumeration can actually have its own data. Yeah. So it's a much richer data type. And early on, I used enumerations a lot to model things. So like building a SQL parser, I would have an enumeration of like a, a node and the different uh, items within the enumeration would be things like, you know, keywords, literal value, yeah. comma, or, you know, just uh, to give an example. Mm -hmm. But another approach would have been just to have a trait for this concept of a node and then have different structs to implement that trait mm -hmm. and then write code that kind of 
just cause these traits to do things without having knowledge of what the underlying type is. And that's maybe a, a way to do things uh, so that they're more extensible so that other people can add their own objects to implement the traits um, rather than having to add it to this one big kind of enumeration. So that's one of the things that I, I've kind of um, struggled a bit um, as I've gone through this learning process with Rust. Mm. So the, because I think, uh, I mean, I haven't read too much of uh, Rust code yet. Uh, so that's why I think uh, it's a bit of a challenge to figure out what what's happening. Of course, I mean, I, I clone all your projects and then um, I'm trying to understand what uh, Wouter did with Scotty uh, so far. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out my head, wrap my head around with all the syntax <coughs> as well. Sure. Um, so yeah. what, what you said there with, um, you know, put some memory on the heap. Um, like it resonates a bit with me because like initially I kind of got caught up in the error handling. So everything can effectively return an error. And like, I felt sort of compelled to handle all of them. Right. And, and then, uh, I started reading some code from, uh, uh, search. That's a full text search engine done in rust. So I uh, started reading some of that code. And effectively, deep down, they have a whole lot of operations which can potentially fail, but you just unwrap them. Okay. Sort of like, yep, we're not going to bother here. We're just going to unwrap. And if this fails, well, mm-hmm. who knows? Like, or it's too um, um, esoteric a failure to bother with. And, and sort of seeing that there was useful for me to sort of um, get except that yeah i don't really need to handle all of them if they're you know if if i know that for my case they can't feel like just unwrap them don't feel the need to sort of like properly handle every every one of them yeah absolutely and i've been through that whole journey i started off like everything was unwrapped um because i didn't know any better and then i learned <laughs> the kind of the correct way of our handling and yeah so generally now yeah my functions always return results and I use the question mark operator um, to you know get the get the okay value or return for my function with some error value. So I mean it is a good practice, but yes, yeah, sometimes there are errors that you can't recover from, and it's okay to call unwrap in those cases. Uh, and also, if you're working on something that's kind of uh, multi-threaded, like when you when you have a panic, it terminates that thread. If mm-hmm. your if your code is just one, you know, if it's a main method and you only have one thread, an unwrap is going to kill your entire process. But if you're running things on threads and that code doesn't unwrap, you know, that thread will die, but your code is still running. And, you know, maybe you have a recovery mechanism where you just try running that thing again if it's failed due to some kind of error. Um, but I mean, it, you know, it is generally best practice to return the results and handle them correctly mm. because then you're, and, and it's, it's, it's funny, like coming from Scala or Java where you don't have to do that, it can feel kind of tedious and rust sometimes that you have to handle these error conditions. But you know, when you're writing code, it's maybe a good thing to handle error conditions. So <laughs> <laughs> maybe we've just got too used to having it too easy and not caring. And now we have to actually, yeah, like, you have to at least like think about it. Like, do I need to handle this error condition? And yeah. you can make that kind of judgment call. Yeah. But in, in terms of, um, so uh, obviously, data fusion and everything is the multi-threaded stuff, right? I mean, you 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 are writing plenty of multi-threaded. Uh, Code there. It is now, and it's funny. So, as, as I've gone through this learning process with everything in Rust, um, like I've rewritten Data Fusion like three times now. Um, there's one big rewrite <laughs> when I figured out wow. to use traits instead of enumerations for something. Um, and recently went through a big rewrite to make it multi threaded. Okay. Um, hmm. And because it was single threaded before. Yeah. And and you know, and because I hadn't um, learned the aspect of Rust at the time, I'd written my code in a way that I couldn't just send these different structs between threads because they didn't have the, the correct characteristics. They didn't implement sync and send, yeah. which are mm. two traits that you have to implement. So I had to go through quite a big refactor. Um, the results are good. So I can you know can now run queries quite scalably. Mm. Um, so at home, I have like a, a twenty-four core Threadripper desktop and. I've been doing my benchmarking with this multi-threaded execution, and that's been really neat. Um, but I'm doing all the threading manually. I'm literally just spawning threads. Mm. Um, and now we have much better ways of doing these things in Rust. We have uh, like support for async in the language. We have frameworks like Tokyo um, for 
executing asynchronous code. So I feel like the next refactor of Data Fusion would be moving it to, you know, use things like Tokyo and async, and that would have benefits over just manually spawning threads. Mm. So one day when I have, you know, when I want to, you know, burn a few weekends, <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe, maybe look at doing that. But or maybe somebody else. Yeah, will. yeah. Because this is something, um, that's why I was really curious, especially because when you started Data Fusion, I think async wasn't there uh, at all. Yeah, it wasn't, exactly. yeah. That's a, that's a relatively recent development, at least in stable yeah, Rust. Yeah. So before we, we talk about what, what is the impact of async is going to be in uh, in, data, in projects like Data Fusion, um, if you're, I mean, coming from Scala, coming from Java, uh, these days you don't really write threads anymore because you have really higher level libraries available like actors right. or uh, channels in Clojure, for example, um, core async mm -hmm. enclosure. There are there are a couple of other abstractions available, like CSP-driven things or actors. Um, I'm not sure what, I think Go has channels, I think. Um, yeah, it's built yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, so something like that. But so usually in these languages, you don't end up with low-level, quote-unquote, low-level threading stuff. Um, so right. how do you see this? low-level thread code, and then these new developments uh, that are coming in Rust, like async, uh, how are they going to help in writing multi-threaded stuff or concurrent programming? Sure. So taking that data fusion example, um, so let's take an example where you have like a parquet data source that's partitioned, mm. which really just means you have multiple files on yep. disk. Um, <laughs> so, so you have um, eight parquet files in a directory. So they all have the same schema, but they have different subsets of the data. Um, if you query that in Data Fusion today, it will spawn eight threads. Each thread will query one partition. It's a very naive um, implementation of parallel mm -hmm. query execution. And it works fine if you have eight files. Uh, but now if you have 256 files and you're running on a node that has two cores, yeah. it, it's yeah. not ideal. So using async in a framework like Tokyo, um, it kind of it abstracts away from that. And I can have a pool of threads effectively. So I can just execute this async code and let the framework take care of thread allocation and reusing threads, yeah. those kind yeah. of things. And, and did you already experiment with it a bit with um, async and uh, Tokyo? I'm really just starting on that learning process right okay. now, actually. I've been chatting with uh, uh, Carl Lurch, the main developer behind, or at least one of the main developers behind Tokyo, and he's actually interested in taking RDBC making it async wow. or, or you know giving me guidance to do that okay. um so that's going to be i think that's going to be the project where i finally learn async and rust <laughs> so that's something that i'm excited about for the you know for the next yeah, month or so getting into yeah, that. i think the async uh, database stuff uh has been one of the nicest projects in in, in these functional languages usually in, in scala you have the async uh, database drivers built um and mm -hmm. uh, yeah i'm, I'm I think Node.js, everything is async, I think, because you don't have much option there. Yes. This, so. No, there's only one yeah, thread. So. <laughs> so. so probably they, they have a lot of async stuff there. Um, go ahead, Walter. It's a good fit for um, functional languages, right? Because you can pass in a closure that needs to be executed some point yeah. later. Um, and in my experience, this is a massive hassle in Java. I mean, it's better now, mm -hmm. but you know, back in the 1.4, 1 1.5 days. Um, oh yeah, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, so I, I guess you swapped over from Java to Rust after after that, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really the last, I'm trying to think how long I've been really active. I think it was really two years ago uh, roughly two years ago, I really made that commitment to really learn Rust and started working on hmm. like data fusion. Before then, I'd kind of tinkered on and off with Rust here and there, you know, but nothing that substantial. So I knew, I knew some yeah. of the basics. But if, if people are really learning uh, Rust right now, would you recommend them to, okay, you know, go and re-implement um, Hadoop or something like that? <laughs> no, maybe start off a little bit smaller. Yeah, I think, I, think the, I think the ideal thing is building, I've noticed quite a few people building command line yeah. tools. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. Rust kind of ports of like classic Linux command line utilities. I think that's a really ideal kind of first project in Rust. Mm -hmm. Personally, I wish that I wish I had chosen something like that. Yeah. So, um, what are the things that you like about Rust, or, or what is the favorite stuff in Rust for you? 
I mean, you know, it's only like a fanboy now, but I mean, every like everything is like really great. Like the the tooling around it, um, like cargo, the can you call it? It's not exactly a package manager, but just the tooling around building your Rust projects um, and publishing to crates.io is really simple. Uh, Docs.irs as well for the documentation. The fact that you're, um, if you have code samples in your documentation, you know, that code gets tested as part of your unit testing. Um, so which kind of guarantees that your documentation is correct. I mean, those, those kind of things are really mm-hmm. great. And <clears throat> I love the fact that when I switch between my Mac and my Linux, I, you know, it's the same experience. I don't have to worry so much about, um, you know, building for different platforms. So, I mean, it depends on the, obviously the type of project mm-hmm. you're doing. Um, so the cargo tooling is real nice. Um, trying to think what else. I mean, the community as well is really a big, uh, you know, it's really an important part of this. Uh, the fact that there, there are people that always seem, you know, very willing to help you out when you're stuck on something in Rust. Mm-hmm. And then in the language features wise, uh, of course, I mean, tooling is, is, I mean, it's, it's ridiculously important for, for beginners and, you know, people who are going to get started with it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, I think, so far, uh, I try to learn different languages. I think Rust has been one of the best beginner experience, I can say. I mean, just install one tool and then just okay. get started. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that's that's really cool. But in terms of language features, um, is there anything that you think, wow, this is, this is super cool? Well, I mean, yeah, the things that drew me to Rust were the memory mm-hmm. safety, um, the thread safety, and the fact that it has this kind of ownership model. I mean, that's really the, the most unique thing about mm-hmm. the language. Um, and also the thing that, used, I mean, makes it kind of difficult to learn, although that, that is getting, it's easier now than it used to be because the compiler is so much smarter. Um, you know, early on, you had to use lifetimes quite often, and now, you know, often you don't for simple use mm-hmm. cases. Um, but yeah, it's really, I mean, for me, it's really having, I mean, like I said earlier, I see it's the best of both worlds between C++ and Java. I get the speeds that I kind of miss from C++, but... I consider Rust almost like a, it's a higher level programming mm. language, even though it's, it's also a systems level language. So that's kind of an interesting dichotomy, yeah. I guess. But it's, um, it feels like a high level language at times. Like um, even now switching between Scala and Rust, I feel like my productivity isn't so mm. different, which is really interesting. Yeah. So uh, as you said, I mean, you don't want to sound like fanboy. So I think I need to ask you a question like, what do you hate about Rust? I think I may have failed already, but <laughs> what do I hate? Okay, yeah, so there are some negatives about Rust. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I wrote another blog post on this. So you know we had the whole call for uh, like Rust 2020 yes, yes, blog posts. Yes. Um, yeah. I wrote one, uh, it's not an original idea by any means, but I wrote one uh, titled Rust Needs to be Boring. Um, so if you're working for a corporate, corporates are typically a, you know, a bit more conservative about technology choices mm-hmm. for some good reasons. Um, and Rust, there are definitely some challenges to getting it adopted in the corporation mm-hmm. right now. Um, one issue is, I mean, the language is fairly new. Um, therefore, the ecosystem is not as mature as something like Java, which has been around for literally decades. Mm-hmm. Um, so often in Rust, if you want to do something, you know, you, you need, like you want to use flat buffers or proto buffers or whatever it is, you might run into a situation where that just doesn't exist mm-hmm. yet. Um and some of the li- yeah, many of the libraries out there are uh, like 0.1, 0.2, um, hmm. which can be a bit concerning if you're putting something into production. So that's definitely one of the challenges. And you know, it's something that will you know obviously change yeah. over time. The ecosystem is maturing, and we will get to a point, I think, pretty quickly, like in the next couple of years, where that really becomes you know a non-issue for you know, at least for 80% of things that developers are wanting to do in the language. Um, the other issue is the, because things as you know, the language is still evolving, like async is fairly recent. Um, there are multiple async libraries out there. Some of them are not compatible with others. There's a little bit of churn there. So I think, you know, some of those things will uh, kind of coalesce over time and projects will merge or, you know, one direction will be picked over another um, so then there'd just be like one way of doing things. Mm. So I think that will that will definitely help a lot. Um, and along with that, I mean, just one thing that's difficult. I mean, I, I worked on a small POC in Rust, but in my day job over the past week, and I needed to use two different crates together. 
And I couldn't find any examples in using these two crates together. So I had to kind of figure out some stuff. Um, again, just the maturity of the ecosystem. Once these things have been around a little longer, you know, somebody will write that blog post on using crate with crate B and here's a sample. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe, maybe I should write that blog post <laughs> for that one. But I think that's, um, so that's really the downside of Rust right now is that it's uh, just the, yeah, the maturity of the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. But that's uh, obviously, as you said, I think uh, over the, over the time, I think it, it, it stabilizes a bit and then more people contribute and then it, it becomes uh, a bit yeah. more um, uh, easy to grok for people and easy to get started and use use different things. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. as developers, we can all be very lazy and I don't think that's a negative thing that you want to build something, you want to get going. It's great if you can mm. find a blog post, copy and paste some codes. It just helps you that first step and then you can yeah. kind of figure out from there like what you really want to do and oh, maybe that was completely the wrong approach. Mm. <laughs> so, well. I think other languages cheat here as well, right? I mean, right, not cheat, but Scala is hosted on the JVM, so you get all of Java, I mean, for better or worse, but yeah, you, no, you for get sure. uh, the ecosystem there. Yeah, and that made the learning curve so much simpler. Yeah, you have to learn some language constructs, but you still have the same class yeah. libraries that you yeah. used to. I think most of the, uh, the, I mean, that's the reason why we have different languages on, the, on this, even stuff that is built on top of JavaScript these days, I think which is kind of, you know, just, just use whatever <laughs> that is there and then combine the things together. Um, but the thing with um, one of the, uh, I did, a, I mean, every, every year I, I go in, uh, go on this journey of perpetually learning Haskell again, sort of, um, you know, okay. <laughs> that's my uh, annual pilgrimage to, uh, there is a conference here called Zurich Hack in Zurich. Every year I go there and then I, I just listen to all these Haskell people talking and not understanding anything. Uh, for a week and then i come back i'm like wow <laughs> i have no idea <laughs> how these things work um but one of the one of the comments that haskell people make is that um they, they have these language extensions so you you keep adding a lot of language extensions to to make any project so you start a project and then you add like a bunch of 20 language extensions and um oh, i've wow, been trying okay. to do this uh, advent of code in rust obviously i think Walter commented that it's probably not a good language to do advent of code <laughs> he, well, he, he, it's it's a lot of data exactly. shuffling. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah um, like, but what I realized is that, um, especially because it's as he was saying, it's it's a lot of reading iterative stuff and then processing them and that kind of shit. And um, the first crate I had to use was iter tools or something, iterative tools, iter tools. Okay. And I was actually surprised how much of this is not in the standard library, mm -hmm. which which I kind of sort of expected mm. so how, how do you think like the, the the standard library size and then having these these multiple things that every project must have anyway sort of uh, things that's interesting and, that, and, that, and that's going to bring me on to macros oh. in a moment which um, yeah. i've got to mention earlier on the yeah <laughs> um, so yeah i think I, th I think it's a good thing that the the, the core rust team are like not trying to throw everything into the language and they're they're not putting things in until they're, you know, really well designed and um, they've thought through the consequences. I think that's probably mm -hmm. a good thing. And over time, some of these third-party crates maybe will get merged into the core, I would imagine, or at least inspire some standard version. So I think that's not mm -hmm. so bad. Um, and again, it just comes back to that whole maturity mm -hmm. thing. Uh, yeah, maybe two years from now, you won't. I actually haven't used the Isatools crate, so I'm not like picking that <laughs> as an example. But but maybe the things that that crate does, maybe some of those will be available in the core language, and there will be less of a need for third-party mm. crates. Um, at least that's what I'd imagine. Um, but yeah, so you, 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 I'm not quite sure. Yeah, the language mm. extensions that kind of got me thinking about macros yeah. in Rust. And one of the things I liked when I went from C++ to Java was the fact that there were no <laughs> macros. <laughs> so, well, so why why did why was that a good thing? So in C you could see this code that uses macros and have absolutely no yeah. idea what it does um, without spending time going and understanding the macros. And then going from that to something like Java, which is kind of renowned for being very boilerplatey, but at least you can look at some Java code and understand exactly what it's doing, even though it's very verbose and whatever. And another JVM languages. Scala, mostly you can kind of tell what it's doing, although Scala has some kind of weird yeah. things that can make yeah. it confusing. Um, so, in, so in Rust, we have macros. So macros are really powerful and they're a really good thing, um, but they can be abused as well. And it, it can just make it very hard to comprehend code if it's very macro heavy. 
Um, because at that point, it's not really code anymore. You have to really understand what the macro is doing. So that's just kind of, I'm not even sure where I'm going with this. It's kind of, it's not necessarily a negative, but um, I think it's good to use macros appropriately and keep them small and just not try and have your, you know, whole code base just be macro Mm. rules. Because I think that can be very, uh, very difficult Mm. to work with. Yeah, you effectively end up with a DSL. Right, exactly. If it fits all macros. It's like a new language on top of... Mm -hmm. Because you, all these new constructs to learn. So if you walk up to a new code base and it's all macros, you're a bit, well. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's, I guess I'm going to learn this new language then. Yeah, and there's, and there's no book on that new language. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. it's kind of harder to learn. <laughs> and, and I think this is a language designed by every project will speak their own language, right? I think that, that makes it even uh, even mm-hmm. trickier to, to follow. Um, I, mean, I think this was one of the original ideas for yeah, this, yeah, by yeah. the way. Where oh, really? It's very macro-heavy. And so they intended sort of, like I said, like you have a domain, so you make a language to speak in the domain. And like that's where sort of the macros yeah. came in, I think. I seem to, I don't have any references to back this up, but I seem to remember that was one of the philosophical No, I mean, you things. have me to back it up. So yes, that's true. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but but totally. I mean, because if you see, for example, Racket, you know, which is basically a, a programming system to build programming languages. So Racket has, mm-hmm. if you start writing Racket, then you say from here, Lang Racket, and then suddenly you switch into something else because you, you invent syntax <laughs> and you can do whatever you like. And you can write literally JavaScript-like syntax in Racket and then just declare that one. So wow. that, that, that's pretty much what uh, what Racket can do. Because one of the, um, uh, there is a uh, lawyer turned font designer turned list programmer uh, called Matthew Buttrick. Okay. Uh, he has a very popular website called uh, practicaltypography.com. Um, Obviously hmm. not popular. Otherwise you guys would have known. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> oh, please, guy, please, yeah. please, 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 please go along with it. <laughs> uh-huh. So he made a, um, he, uh, made a system called Polen using Racket to publish his online book. And, and it is completely written okay. in, uh, in, um, in Racket. So uh, you, you install Polen, whatever Racket module called, and then you write Polen, P-O-L-L-E-N, and then it produces a book. So CSS and HTML syntax, there is a special DSL. It's a, not, not even a DSL, it's a language. It's, it's super wow. cool. Um, but he being a font designer, I think uh, that the, Poland things start with uh, like a diamond shape thingy, you know, uh, like he's super typographic guy. So he's like, type this one to start Poland. God, I'm like, how the hell do I type this shit? Like, I have no idea. Okay, I'm going to copy paste it from the internet. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, if you, if you go in that direction of DSLs and macros, it can be very, you know, difficult to understand. And, um, but I, I think um, it's, it's, it's a, Kind of a, uh, especially for us, I think Gordon and I, we are a bit more familiar with Clojure as well, uh, which is Lisp on JVM. Yeah. And they're uh, a dynamic language, so there is no type system. Um, there is a type system, it's uh, dynamic. So Rust mm-hmm. is like a completely other side of it, like more like Scala for us. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm just, um, yeah, I mean, I guess I've just be, been using mm-hmm. type safe kind of compile with languages for a long time. That's just kind of, yeah, what I'm more yeah, comfortable yeah, yeah. with. And in terms of tooling, what, what do you use to write Rust code, by the way? So I use um, products from JetBrains. So oh, okay. um, so I started out with IntelliJ. Um, so IntelliJ mm-hmm. is a, it's an ID that is originally just for Java. It now supports other languages through plugins. Yeah. And Rust is one of those. So that's, that's um, I, I like that. But they also have a more specialized tool called CLion, which is for C++. Yeah. And it has a Rust plugin. Uh, the benefit of C line over IntelliJ is that it, has a, it actually has a debugger for Rust. Oh, um, hmm. so okay. that's pretty cool. But C line is a paid product. IntelliJ there's a community version. So. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been playing with a couple of um, editors now. I think uh, some people use VS Code, and uh, I use Emacs. Obviously. Yeah, VS Code, and there's also Atom has a plugin for Rust. I haven't used that in a long time. Yeah. Um, but I know one time that seems to be popular. Yeah, especially with the language server protocol LSP things coming up, I think mm. uh, every editor is now going to get more or less the similar experience these days. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think the language server is provided by Cargo. So yeah, I think, I mean, if your ID supports the client side fully, you should get the same type of integration completions and yeah. uh, annotations. I think that's what I'm, I'm using now with Emacs and then LSP more and then uh, hmm. Cargo RLS to, to connect to that yes. one. I think there are some things that are missing, but otherwise it's pretty much pretty good, I think. Uh, I mean, there is a running joke on on our Defen podcast that I keep asking every um, guest, like whether you use Emacs or some other shit, because you know I'm I'm kind okay. of an Emacs fanatic, yeah. and and being uh, in in <laughs> in Lisp community, you know, Emacs is the thing. <laughs> sure, sure, I can see that. Yeah, I guess yeah. Anybody anybody coming from kind of Java Trust is quite likely to be using these Edit, kind of, editors, you know, yeah. full kind of That's, That's true. Ideas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. I think um, we have. A, oh, we're almost one hour. Perfect. Um, yeah. So, any any um, parting thoughts, Andy? I mean, the people who want to learn Rust, where should they start now? I mean, obviously, I'd like to say, come help me with my projects. Yes. Um, that'd be very yes, selfish. Um, and I'm, I'm also happy to share what I know about Rust, but, you know, I'm, I'm definitely no expert. So, yeah, definitely, um, yeah, go take a look at Apache Arrow and Data Fusion. They're really interesting. And, and the Arrow project in particular, I mean, that has a whole community behind it. Um, it's not, you know, that one's not just me. RDBC is a very new project. It's very small and has some design flaws. I could definitely use some help. And because it's such a small code base, that's maybe one... Um, it's good, uh, you know, it may be good timing to get involved, especially looking at things like async. Um, be great to have some people to work with on that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that'd, that'd be kind of cool. Um, but other than that, yeah, just go build some simple command line tool to do something like read a CSV file or I don't know. Yeah. Um, that, HDFS. That's a, a great place to start. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rebuild HDFS on, on Rust. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember if I, if anyone's doing that yet. Um, I think I looked at one time and I couldn't find a crate. So <laughs> <laughs> I think once this episode releases and there is going to be a Reddit post saying RDFS, you know, <laughs> <laughs> RDFS. There we go. That's going to be. And, and, and actually, that's, that's kind of an interesting point. So, like RDBC, like all I did there is I, I took a thing that existed in Java and tried to apply it in Rust. And I think that's not a, a bad idea either. Mm -hmm. There are things, I mean, not just in Java, but, you know, in these more mature languages, there are things that exist uh, that maybe don't exist in the Rust community yet. And that, those are great places to get started on a yeah. new project um, and a great way to learn. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you see all these uh, command line tools, they're essentially, I mean, they're there in C already, C or C++ or something. Yeah. And, and uh, like cat versus bat or grep versus rip grep and so everything is is right. uh, old is new again in rust and faster and safer i hope <laughs> so awesome uh so um for the people who are listening out there i think uh, they should certainly check out rdbc and uh, uh data fusion arrow part is uh, now part of uh, apache arrow um so that's part of apache arrow yeah, yeah. and um um Obviously, all these uh, project details are on your website, right, Andy? Andy. Right, yes, I have a, have a blog. It's andygrove.io. Yeah, and um, so it's not Intel's Andy Grove, but the other Andy Grove. <laughs> this is why I have the <laughs> .io domain name, because, uh, yeah, I cannot buy uh, the .com. And then any service I use, actually GitHub, I managed to get Andy Grove, but pretty much every... Thing I try and do the Andy Grove name has been reserved by Intel Corporation. Damn so it. that's uh, definitely challenging. <laughs> yeah, and, and it doesn't help that you have been in the industry for thirty years. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this is my goal now to become the second most famous Andy Grove in the Andy Grove know, the second industry. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag life goals. I'm, I'm not sure many many fact, people uh, know the original Andy Grove anyway. So you know you'll be famous. It's funny. I mean, yeah. Some like I, I get yeah people joke with me about this at work a lot, but then there's always like one person in the conversation who doesn't understand what we're talking yeah, about. Exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I was telling some of my colleagues today that, hey, you know, I'm talking to Andy Grove and they're like, uh-huh, who? Like, okay, so you don't know the original Andy Grove, so that's good. <laughs> so I can tell you about the new Andy Grove. <laughs> nice. That's funny. So there's going to be a complete version. I have a personal website which I haven't updated in many years, but at that time um, I ended up buying a domain name, theotherandygrove.com. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you should do the realandygrove.com. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. Fantastic. Okay, so that's how all great ideas start, by the way, better domain name, including this <laughs> podcast. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, we're, we're doing this because we bought a domain. <laughs> 
Yes, sure. <laughs> That's the reason. That meant we have to do it. Exactly. Well, it's a forcing. It's a forcing function. It's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that that's that's pretty much how it started. So check out um, andygrove.io um, mm-hmm. for Andy's uh, blog posts and um, his benchmarking on his twenty-four core machine to show how uh, Rust is faster than uh, than Java and Scala. Yeah. And um, uh, your RDBC project is also on your GitHub, right, Andy? Uh, already? Yeah, so my, yeah, so my GitHub repo, so on GitHub, I am just Andy Grove. Yeah. Um, so. so check out the projects. And uh, I think uh, Apache Arrow project has uh, plenty of uh, low-hanging fruit that uh, Andy has made in the Jira to mark as a beginner uh, issues. So That's a great point. Thanks. Yeah, there are Jiras for Arrow, so that's a great place to... And some of them are tagged as, you know, ideal for you know, newcomers. Yeah, yeah. So check them out and, and it's going to be a, uh, I think it's a very impactful project because, you know, after every, all the big data things are now slowly uh, for the, for the in-memory things and the column-oriented things kind of aggregating towards Arrow. So um, it's amazing to talk to you, Andy, and then thanks for all the uh, code that you wrote so far <laughs> that uh, we are, we're trying to learn from it. And hopefully you'll yeah, continue yeah. the adventure and then finally finish the whole data fusion that is going to replace entire Hadoop ecosystem. Absolutely. Say, we'll I'm, talk to you next year when you yeah. spark for Rust. <laughs> that would be really great. It's, it's a good goal to have. And, you know, even if I never get there, which I probably won't, it's just, um, I just love the ongoing learning, just going through this process and just learning more about the ecosystem. Mm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, thank, thanks for having me on here. I'm yeah, very honored to be invited. Of course, it's a, it's a pleasure for us. Pleasure was ours. Yeah. Thank you. So that's it from us. And uh, we hope to have a new episode pretty soon. Uh, I think we'll, we'll get busy <laughs> to, to mm-hmm. record more episodes soon uh, on a much more uh, erratic schedule <laughs> as we have. Uh, much more regular, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, we'll, we'll get better at it. Yeah. <laughs> Along with our <laughs> Rust code. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's it from us. It's episode number three already? No, two. It's the third episode, but it's number two. Yeah, exactly. So we started zero. Yes. That so there's the proper indexing. Yes. Yes. And uh, keep listening. And then if you have any comments, please reach out to us on, on Twitter. And uh, we are on Reddit. And uh, go and hit podcast.com to listen to all the, all the tracks. And that's it from us. Bye. Bye-bye.